0: Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. We are reading this morning from the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, continuing on in our series on the pastoral epistles. 2 Timothy chapter 2, reading verses 14 through verses 26. The Apostle Paul writes, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, Father, this morning, as we meditate upon the words that your apostle wrote to his son in the gospel 2,000 years ago, we see the relevance, the glory of your nature, even in this text this morning. We ask you, Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts, open up our understanding that we may receive your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. anytime i start sermon preparation usually the first thing i do is read the text and ask myself what is obvious here in the text what is apparent what jumps out at us that is easily seen in this text this morning it was more obvious than usual because over and over in verse 14 Paul talks about not quarrelling with words, verse 15, the word of truth, verse 16, babble, just foolish words, verse 17, he has the word talk, verse 18, the word saying, verse 19, let everyone who names or talk about something. The theme is obvious, it's about talking, it's about using words. Words matter words are powerful there are some people who use a lot of words there are other people who not so much they're a man of few words we all know people like this in both categories people who talk a lot people who don't have much to say there are those people that when they call you you look at your phone and it's not that you don't want to talk to them you have to decide do i have enough time to talk to them I have a man in particular in mind that none of you know at all, but if he calls me, I have to decide, do I have 20 minutes to have a conversation that could take two minutes? Good guy. I like him. I just know it's not going to be a short conversation. There are others who call you and you know it's going to be brief. They don't like talking on the phone. They're going to say what they have to say. They're going to hang up. Words. It's how we communicate with each other. Preaching is communicating ideas about God and his kingdom through words. My role every Sunday for the most part is to say words. My sermon manuscript, which is a mashup of outlines and written manuscript, I know how long it needs to be to cover the time that we take for a sermon. It's between 2,500 and 2,900 words. Like my manuscript this morning was right around 2,500, and I know that the words that I will speak will be about double that in the 40 minutes or so that we'll take for a sermon. The words I speak here are supposed to be an exposition of the Word of God, Scripture, God's Holy Spirit in writing. We call the Bible that exalts the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ. And my words every Sunday are a humble attempt to point to that reality. Couples, married couples, make each other's day and ruin each other's day using words. No married couple is exempt from that reality. Uh, that's what happens. Uh, words are powerful, they uplift, they build, they exalt, they bring joy, and they convey love. Those words also destroy and cast down, they ruin lives, they bring destruction and heartache. I've watched as the camera is on the defendant in the courtroom, and they probably know what's coming. I watched one case in particular where I think the defendant knew that they were going to be pronounced guilty, but something about hearing that jury foreman read those words we find the defendant in this charge, then the pause, guilty. And the weight of that one word sinks, and the person. Crumbles. The words from a judge, I sentence you to life in prison. The words from a doctor, I'm sorry, but you have cancer. It's no accident that John would write then in his opening statement, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and then tell us that it was Jesus who was in the beginning with God and who is God, that the Word was more than an abstract idea. The Word is a person, it's the person of Jesus Christ. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we behold his glory, the word. In this case, it doesn't just mean a series of letters, but it's the word, it's the logos, it's, the, it's where we get logic. Like Jesus is the logic of the universe. He is the rationale, he is, he is this reasonable thought that then comes in to communicate to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And John says, that's the word sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. That's not true at all. Anybody who's lived any amount of life knows that's not true. Words are powerful because they represent ideas and reality is communicated and revealed through words. And it's usually through the human voice, but it can also be through sign language. Sign language is the same thing. It could be through Braille. So That's words that are being communicated. There is new technology being experimented with to where a deaf person puts on a vest and the vest has diodes all over the front and the back. And there is a device that picks up what somebody is saying and it translates that into little shocks, not that hurt, but that make you aware that this is here and and this is here and this is, and through that, the hearing impaired person can hear through the points all over their chest and back. They can understand the idea. It's amazing technology that, that they're doing. And I, was, I watched a video of the guy that is really spearheading this and where this is going and to be able to open up channels of communication who are impaired so that in, usually they couldn't understand words or ideas through the voice, but now they have other means to do so. Words. Nietzsche said, all I need is a sheet of paper and something to write with, and then I can turn the world upside down. Nietzsche, who lived in the 1800s, most people think about how awful it was that he made the statement, God is dead, and that's what he's famous for. But that wasn't the rest, that wasn't the whole statement. He said, God is dead, and we have killed him. And what he was saying was that we have killed the idea of God. And because we've created this void, and he was not a believer, but he said, but because we have created this void, what is going to come in and fill that void is going to be absolute chaos and destruction. And Nietzsche in the 1800s predicted what would happen in the first part of the 1900s, including World War II. Not prophetically predicted it, but he said it is an inevitable consequence that if this happens and we have killed the idea of God, then this is going to take over. And he was absolutely right. And he said, all I need is a sheet of paper and something to write with and then I can turn the world upside down. And so it has been. You can go to Barnes and Noble today. I saw it there a while back. You can buy Adolf Hitler's book that he wrote in the 1920s, Mein Kampf. You can buy Mein Kempf, which is his manifesto that would educate the people that bought into his vision so that by 1939, He can start a war that turns into the deadliest conflict this world has ever known. But it starts with words. He's writing something. The Unabomber's manifesto. You know, these people that have ideas, they they are destructive in reality, but it starts with words. Almost every powerful movement for good or for evil has been accompanied by written text, including Christianity we know god because we have the bible it's not just general revelation there is a god we don't know anything about him what we know about god everything we know about god comes from written text so in verse 14 paul tells timothy to remind them of these things he's talking about what we've preached about previously and charge them before god not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers now i take this not to quarrel about words from the context of other writings of Paul, namely Titus 3 and verses that he's going to write later on in chapter 2, to refer to people who try to bring division in the church with their words. It's okay to have healthy conversations about things you disagree about. I I don't think that's what Paul is saying here, is just pretend like we all agree with each other because we can't have any discussion about anything we disagree about. I don't think that's what Paul's saying at all. Paul's talking about people who bring division through their words, through quarreling. It's about division, words that divide. So he writes in verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. My focus is on that last phrase, rightly handling the word of truth. I think the ESV that we use is a little soft in the beginning of that verse, to do your best uh, if you grew up in a king james tradition you would know the verse as study to show yourself approved if you are in the nasb the new american standard bible which is the most literal translation most of us could use it would say this it would say be diligent so do your best yes but it's be diligent it's work hard king james took it as study to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed. NASB says, accurately, rightly handling truth. Now I'm going to rephrase this in a way that I believe is faithful to the text. This is what Paul's saying. When it comes to how you handle the word of truth, you must work and labor and be diligent to handle that word accurately. That's what Paul is saying. It takes effort. It can be work. It doesn't always feel spiritual. I just had this conversation, uh, I think it was with you, on our call uh, this week. said a lot of times interpreting Scripture, what we, you know, especially with preachers we call exegesis, the interpretation, the extracting the meaning out of the text, does not always feel like a spiritual task. Ask any preacher who labors in sermon preparation how spiritual it feels, and I think the answer is going to be sometimes it does, but most of the time, it feels tedious. I love the moments when preparing a sermon, when I see a glorious truth in fresh light, and I think, I've, I've got to share that with the people. That is what keeps me going every Sunday, because I do see those almost every week. I'm studying it, and, and it's just this aha moment, and I say, wow, I've never really looked at it this way. And then the next thing is, I, I want to share that, and then it, then the, I hope I can. I hope I have the words to convey the feeling that I just had. I I hope they see this. I want our people to see this glorious truth that I just saw. Like that's my job is, is to relay that glorious truth and say, look at God's glory in this text. It happened two sermons ago. Paul writing in 2 Timothy 1, he says, He saved us and called us to a holy calling. And then it says, that was a gift that he gave us in Christ, Jesus, before the ages began. Remember, I preached about that two sermons ago in this series. So God gave us a gift, and that gift was salvation and a call to holiness, to sanctification. And he gave it to us in Christ, and it happened before he ever said, let there be. Before there was anything in this universe, in time, eternity, past, he says, in Christ, you were saved and you're called to holiness. And I saw that for the first time and I said, I, I, I want our people to see this. I want you to see the glory of, of, of the, your salvation and what is really going on in your life. It's not a happenstance. It's not a fluke. You didn't just get up one morning and say, I think I'll follow Jesus. It's like, no, God has had a plan. So yes, I have those moments. I hope they see what I see. I hope they feel what I feel. That happens. But most of the time, it's wrestling with the text. It's engaging other preachers to see how the community of faith has understood this text because no text can be interpreted in isolation. You get yourself in big trouble doing that. What does this text mean to me? The text doesn't mean anything to you. The text means something. It has an application to you, but you don't get your own private interpretation of this text. And all texts in Scripture must be interpreted within the broader context of faith. Without that, you end up in bad places. So I'm engaging the text at a tedious level. I'm looking at deciding, is, you know, is that verb singular or is it plural? Because the people in the pew don't care at all. So it's my job to care. It's my job to convey all of this, researching original languages and then synthesizing all that into a sermon that is easily grasped and understood. Like how do you synthesize all that and then translate, and translate that into a sermon? So yes, a preacher labors to accurately discern truths. And I do believe this is to an extent what Paul is referring to in his command to Timothy, because Timothy is a pastor who is going to expound truth to his people. So Paul's telling them, you've got to rightly discern the word of truth. You're a pastor. You're teaching others. So, okay, so that's great for preachers. But what about those who aren't preachers? What about those who don't labor to prepare a sermon to present to other people? Do you also need to labor and study and work to rightly understand truth? And I would say yes, because the only option is to not handle your reading and study of scripture carefully. You can either handle it rightly or you can handle it carelessly. That's your other alternative. So it's not just to preachers, it's to anybody who reads scripture, who meditates upon scripture, who says, this is the book that has life, that engages me with my savior. Because if you don't divide scripture that way and discern scripture that way, it results in error that is devastating and it could destroy your soul. So you hear me use the word often orthodox, and it is important that we remain orthodox in our Christian faith. Now you can be unorthodox in other areas of life and be okay, just not your faith. You could have an unorthodox approach to your diet, your exercise, your treatment of your health issues. You may take an unorthodox path, still going to be saved. That's fine. You could Drive to Montana, that would be orthodox. You could hitchhike to Montana, that would be unorthodox. may not be wise, but it's not damning to your soul. I've used this example before, but if I found out today I had cancer, I would say, how serious is it? Are we sure we can treat it and I'll be okay? And if they said yes, i say, I'm going to go your orthodox route. If they say it's terminal, I'm going to become a very unorthodox person in my treatment. I'm gonna, I don't know what I would do. I don't think anybody knows for sure until they're there, but I know I would, I may, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to try some unorthodox things, maybe against the advice of a doctor. So you can be unorthodox in some ways. You can't be unorthodox in your faith. When Paul says the way that we are to handle truth is rightly or accurately, he is using the word ortho, ortho, Tomeo, That's what he's writing. If Paul was here today, he doesn't speak English and he was preaching, that's the word he would use. ortho tomeo. And it has that word ortho in it. It literally means to cut straight. That's what it means. To cut straight or to make a straight path. That's where we have this word is in all kinds of things that we, we do even in our society. Today, I remodeled a house years ago, stripped it top to bottom and there was only one instance I did not have to cut the board straight. I was laying the floating wood floors. I had ripped out all the trim and the doors. I started with one board on one wall. You lay it across. When you get to the other side of the room, um, the board's width probably is going to be too wide. It's not going to fall against the other wall. So you have to cut that, that board. And so I, used a, I would measure it, and I used a jigsaw. And I cut it, and it wasn't perfectly straight, and I didn't care because a piece of baseboard was going to sit on top that and cover it up. And it was going to look just fine. But most of the cuts I made, uh, I would hang doors and I would have to, the doors would be too long and I would have to cut the bottom of the door off. You better make sure that's straight. So you measure put the masking tape down to keep it from splintering and it makes And then you use the circular saw and money uh, that better be straight. You don't, those doors are expensive. You don't get a second chance you better cut that line straight. I put in all the trim work, all the baseboards, a little bit of crown molding, all the door trim, and you find out real fast your house is not actually square. It's the first thing you learn when putting baseboards in corners is that 45 degree miter joints are no guarantee um, that this is gonna turn out right. I've cut lots of corners two and three times, but you better make sure that's accurate you better make sure that's straight. Orthodox. That's what that word means. Perfect angles. Accurate. This is exactly what Paul is conveying to us. When you handle the truth, you don't do it carelessly. You don't eyeball it. You don't guess. You don't presume. You don't assume. We get it right. Now, when Paul talks about quarrels and controversies, I understand, because I don't want to take his words out of context, I understand he's talking about controversies in the church. But the increased connectivity that technology has provided us, has, if it's taught us anything, is it's easier now than ever for people to quarrel over the dumbest things. Everybody wants to take a position over everything, their there's sides. And it's always been that way, but I think now it's a little easier. It provides a forum to do so. As far back as I can remember, it was Coke or Pepsi. And everybody's gonna take a position and why this is, is better than the other. Say so I straddle the fence, I'll take Coke over Pepsi, but Pepsi zero over, over Coke zero, um, but Apple and Android. Oh, everybody, that's, that's a position. Everybody's got their, their take on that. And, and they become, it be, almost becomes a cult. I'm using that word loosely. But you're, you're in the Apple culture. You're in the end. I said years ago in this conversation, it was a room full of preachers having this conversation. I pulled out my phone. And I said, I will never own anything but a Blackberry. I made that exact statement. <laughs> and I meant it. I, I would tell people why it's better than your iPhone or whatever it was. This is why it's better than... I was a Blackberry evangelist. It's like, this is the... I will, And I said that I could take you to the spot in the room I was sitting in when I said that. I will never own anything but my BlackBerry. That did not age well. Is <laughs> it so Ford or Chevy? Maybe Dodge. Toyota. Um, we, got, we got our positions on all these things, you know. And it's like, well, the reality is if, like if every Apple phone was wiped out in the world, people in my camp, we'd adjust, and vice versa, right? You'd survive. You'd make it. Driving a, you know, if you've got to drive your Honda truck, if that's the only truck left on the planet and you need a truck, you're going to go buy a Honda truck. Um, We become snobs about it. Oh, that we would be as dogmatic about the primacy of the gospel and the orthodox doctrines of biblical truth as we are about the silly things that we love to take positions on. So we learn to coexist with other people of faith on non-essential issues. There was a, what's the name of the book? I just, I read it about a year ago. It was something to the effect about hills to die on. That there are some hills worth dying on, there are other hills and not worth dying on. And that there are secondary and there are issues kind of at the third level. Like, I don't believe at all that the rapture of the church is going to include people disappearing from the face of the earth. It's a very modern idea that has not existed throughout church history and not at all what the church has taught. And I don't see it in scripture at all, but I have friends and preachers I love who teach this. I don't declare them heretics. It's a, they're in a minority position, but I don't declare them heretics. and I don't disfellowship with them. I think they're saved. I think we're going to we're going to spend eternity together. If we don't, it's not going to be over that particular idea and viewpoint. Because if we, if we exclude everybody who doesn't believe exactly like us, eventually you'll be a denomination of one. Because you can find in every person something that you disagree, disagree about. We are united on the gospel. Now, if someone were to deny the second coming of Jesus... The return of Christ or the resurrection of the dead like this Hymenius and Philetus that Paul talked about. So Timothy, they have denied the resurrection. He's not taught that the resurrection has already happened. He's not talking about the resurrection of Christ. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead at the second coming of Christ. Someone were to deny the return of Christ, I had this conversation with somebody yesterday and said, I believe and I think all Christianity does is that the rejection of the idea of the future return of Christ places you outside of what it means to be a believer. We, to be a believer means that Jesus Christ will come a second time. He is coming back. It's fundamental to our, The resurrection of the dead is a future reality that we embrace. It's primary... There are several doctrines that we embrace and guard and protect and proclaim, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is the central message that must define us. I was asked this week, someone asked me if I would define the gospel. And I was not anticipating that question. And I said, I thought just for a second, I said, well, I would start with, I'm a sinner. The conversation with the gospel starts with, I'm a sinner. I have violated the commandment of God to be holy. I can't be holy. My flesh doesn't allow me to be holy. It's not even possible. I'm I'm a sinner. It's what I am. It's what I do. And the wrath of God is against my sin. So God hates sin, the smallest sin, if there is such a thing is infinitely offensive to God's infinite holiness and glory and he has no choice because he's not gonna violate his holiness. He has no choice but to punish me with eternal damnation because I am a sinner. The wrath of God is against my sin. I am damned and condemned and without hope because I'm a sinner. Except God in his infinite wisdom and in his loving kindness and in his divine providence sends his son to be the propitiation for the sin The appeasing sacrifice that puts, Romans 3, God put Jesus forward to be the propitiation. That's as core scripture of the Bible as I can think of. Like, who killed Jesus? It's like God did. He puts, Paul says, God put him forth to be the appeasing sacrifice so that I wouldn't have to pay the penalty of my sin. My sin's penalty was paid in the body of Jesus. My sin absorbed into his body. In return, he gives me his righteousness the great exchange. He imputes His righteousness to me. I received this on the basis of my saving faith, but even my faith was not the catalyst. When I was dead in trespasses and sin, the Spirit of God brings life to me. He raised me from the dead. He brought me to new life and caused me, this is Peter's words, caused me to be born again through the living and abiding Word of God. I have been buried with Christ in baptism under the only name under heaven whereby we must be saved. I said, that was my off-the-cuff answer of what the gospel is. That's our testimony. That's our story. So Paul goes on in verse 16. He says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead more and more people into ungodliness. He says, their talk will spread like gangrene. He names these two guys, he gives us an example who have done this, and he says they have swerved from the truth. So remember, orthodox is to be straight. So Paul just uses this word and says, straight path. And Hymenaeus and Philetus, they've swerved. They've took a detour. They didn't stay on the straight path. Paul says there is a kind of talk that leads to ungodliness. They were teaching something outside the bounds of what Scripture teaches and Paul Paul calls it irreverent babble. There is a lot of great preaching going on today in churches. I can think of several men who are right now, probably right this minute, I was thinking last night about them, I was like, I could just start thinking of people right now who I think are bringing faithful exposition of Scripture while I'm doing it at the same time men I know, all over the country. There's a lot of great preaching that's going on. There is also a lot of irreverent babble going on in pulpits today. Like, people talk about the church being in trouble. The the church is not in trouble. The church has never been in trouble. We need to discern what the church is. Because the true church is not defined by any denominational boundaries, The true church is God's expression of his kingdom. It's the human expression of God's kingdom upon the face of the earth. God give us discernment to know what that is. But there's a lot of irreverent babble going on in the pulpit today. And because it sounds good and because people are not demanding biblical fidelity from their pulpit, it passes as what's called preaching when it's nothing but. Jonathan Cruz, in his book, What Happens When We Worship, wrote these words. If I would want you to remember anything I said today, it wouldn't be my words, but Jonathan's words, because it's, it's so good. He, he wrote this incredible book, What Happens When We Worship, and this is what he says. Worship is never dull, but we are sometimes church going is monotonous and mundane only because our eyes are blinded to the supernatural wonder that is taking place all around us the reality is that worship is an exhilarating experience so we don't need smoke machines more lights dramatic presentations louder music mystical theology or entertaining speakers to make worship exciting we simply need to understand what's going on in the first place when the saints gather on God's appointed day and worship him in the way that he is directed God is actually there we literally come into his presence the primary work of worship is done by God himself by God's design ordinary is inherent to worship Ordinary is inherent to worship. It is meant to be fairly unremarkable, centered on a book, on a table, and water. Nothing flashy here. I take the water to mean the waters of baptism. Centered on a book, on a table, and water. Nothing flashy here. We need men and women who are gripped with the seriousness of the reality of the world's condition, and men and women who understand the gospel is the only hope of this world. Paul Washer said, We need preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ who know the scriptures and are enabled by the grace of God to face any culture and cry out, Thus saith the word of the Lord. The opposite of that is irreverent babble. Verse 17, this irreverent babble, this kind of talk spreads like gangrene. I don't know if you know what gangrene is. I looked it up and clicked on images, and my browser's safe search blurred the images. That's how bad it is. I have to override something in my browser to see pictures of gangrene because it is grotesque. Your extremities, your toes, your fingers turn into rotting flesh because they lose blood flow. And Paul said, foolish talk and bad God God ideas can kill members of your body. Remember, Paul says we are all members of the body. We are all filling a role. And Paul says, just like gangrene, foolish talk can kill, It cuts off the life supply, and can turn it into rotting flesh. He says, run from it. Flee from that nonsense. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That first, so what Paul's saying is all of this can happen. People can fall away. God has a firm foundation. And within this firm foundation is embossed these two sentences. It's sealed into this foundation. Number one, the Lord knows who are his. He's echoing what Jesus said. I know my sheep, Jesus said, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. It's like, I know my people. He knows who are his. These are statements of comfort. His firm foundation stands strong. The church will not fall. God has a covenant people. The church is not in trouble. God has a covenant people. But the first sentence is a promise from God. The second sentence is a command. and says, God knows who are who's it belonged to him, now you depart from iniquity. If you count yourself as one who is counted as Christ's, then you also must heed the commandment to depart from iniquity. So he makes that statement, depart from iniquity, and then he goes into verse 22 and says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And he goes back. He just keeps layering this. And oh, by the way, verse 23, I have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversy. So Paul, Paul's hitting other points, but he keeps circling back and saying, I'm going to hit this again. I'm going to say it a little bit different. Don't have anything to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, for you know that they breed corals. And it seems that Paul's greatest concern is the division. What it brings, the controversies bring, the foolish conversations bring about quarrels, which bring division. What would happen if we would simply take every command in Scripture at face value and say, okay, God, you commanded it, I'm going to try to do it. I had that conversation a couple weeks ago with someone. He was telling me, he said, you know, he said, we worry about all these things in our lives that aren't really addressed explicitly in scripture. we were talking about one thing in particular. He said, you know, the Bible doesn't even really address that or even a principle for it. He said, what if we just took the book and said, what if I just simply followed the commandments of this and just tried to do what the Bible told me to do? And so I looked at this verse through the lens of that conversation and said, What would happen if this week, if all of us committed in the next seven days, before we gather again, simply to say, I'm going to be intentional about one thing that Paul said we should do. It's like, Paul doesn't make, let me back up. I mean, Paul is the, Paul is not authoritative. The Word of God is authoritative. Paul is an instrument, so we're not elevating Paul. It's Scripture, it's God's Word. And when God tells us to do something, it's never a suggestion. God doesn't make suggestions. Um, If God says it, it's a command. It's like, you do this. And God doesn't command anything to our detriment or anything that's going to harm us. Everything that God commands is for our ultimate good and for our joy. And so he's commanding. It's Paul writing, but God is the one that's commanding, saying, Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. What would happen if this week we simply committed in the next seven days before we gather again to say, you know what? I'm going to be intentional about pursuing righteousness and faith and love and peace and see what happens. I'm going to live my week to pursue those things. What's righteous? What's not righteous? I have decisions to make. I have decisions to make on your job and your family, how you're going to, Regard your finances. Is this honor, righteousness, faith, love, and peace? How I deal with other people? That's the calling. That's the commandment. We're going to flee our passions, and we're going to pursue God by pursuing these things. Let's stand. Father, this morning we have... Stepped into your presence by gathering together as you have commanded us. Millions of people do today on your day, and as millions of people have done for the last 2,000 years, we simply join in that community of faith to be faithful to you and to know that here, uh, where two or three are gathered together in your name, uh, you are in our midst. You're not here symbolically, you are here through the power of your spirit just as real as if you were here in your flesh in the man Christ Jesus. That it is the spirit of Jesus Christ that dwells among us today. And so Lord, with that reality in place, we ask you that the words that we've heard, that they would be embedded deep into our heart and our soul that this morning we've heard the gospel. We glory in the beauty of the truth of the gospel that we as wretched sinners could stand before you justified, free of condemnation, free of any guilt because you have declared us innocent because of what Jesus did on the cross. That is our hope, that is our salvation, that is the gospel. And from that we then live what Paul wrote to Timothy You've saved us but you've also called us to a holy calling you've called us to holiness to a life of holiness to a life of separation to a life that uh, our values our lifestyle our words our deeds do not reflect those of our world and the culture around us they are markedly different we look we act we feel we speak differently lord and in a world that is so easy for our faith to just blend in. We pray today that you would give us the courage and the boldness Lord to declare mightily in this generation that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the only way to salvation the only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. So we ask you today this morning as I've closed this sermon by making an appeal for us to pursue righteousness and love and peace and faith Lord that you would keep that in our remembrance this week that the Holy Spirit would would take that word that's been placed into our hearts and our minds and would, would bring it to the forefront every day as we live our lives that we would be mindful of that calling to pursue these things Lord we do it to your glory so that your name would be glorified, that everything that we do, we do for the glory of God. That is the, the purpose of our lives, is that we live our life between now and the time that we die with one purpose, and that is to make Jesus look glorious in this world. We ask this this morning in the name above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you this morning.